We're in this part of Deuteronomy where we're seeing a lot of what we call the civil law, like just the law for society, like criminal court, that kind of stuff, law enforcement things. And we're going to get a fair bit of that tonight. And it's the reality of the human experience. And so as we go through Deuteronomy, we just continue to let God speak to us from his word to our hearts, verse by verse, the living word. So we pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1, where, again, just continuing his teaching, Moses, led by the Holy Spirit, says this in verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Israel was almost always going to be the underdog in any conflict with their surrounding neighbors. It's a small territory the size of Southern California. Their standing army that's going in under the census that was taken here is about 600,000 men between the age of, you know, over the age of 20. And they're surrounded by vicious people. We're told they're surrounded by people that are stronger than them, much stronger than them. You know, like, there's a helpless feeling when you're around someone who's stronger than you, physically, emotionally, mentally. It's intimidating. Now, spiritually, it should not be, right? Like, a spiritual person stronger than you should not be intimidating. They should be encouraging and edifying. But in the world of the flesh, it can be intimidating. And so they were going to always be the underdog. They would have a standing army, but the battle was the Lord's. And we know David, 500 years after the census, when he took on Goliath, when the nation of Israel was crippled by the giant Goliath, that he said, you know, the battle is the Lord's, and you're mocking God, and the battle is the Lord's, and he's going to give us the victory. And so David, when he came to reign and came to power, he was surrounded by mighty men who also lived by faith, and they all understood the battle is the Lord's. Now, they fought physical battles for their existence, even as Israel tonight fights physical battles for their existence, right? Isn't the great conflict of our timeline being on the planet 60 years, it's always Israel. It's the Six-Day War. It's Yom Kippur. It's the Lebanon Wars. It's just, it's just this ideological, religious war that's just there. It's a spiritual war, ultimately, between the coming king, established his kingdom in Israel, and the forces of darkness against that and it's incredible to be alive in our time. And we know that these things are biblical, a biblical proportion that we see going on. And they just, they just flare up and they reflare up and they die down and they, they reflare up. And someone says they're going to bring us peace and there's never really peace. And then here we go again. So Israel, even, even their existence right now as a nation just shows that, I was talking with Jennifer about this. It's so crazy that Jerusalem is such a by any city standard, a pretty insignificant city in the sense of its size, what it produces, and stuff like that. But it's Jerusalem. It's the city of the king. And there they are, 1,500 years, 3,500 years ago. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know the city's been burnt and rebuilt like 20 times. There's layers, literally like three stories of layers in Israel to this day of the different cities. You can see Nehemiah's wall when you go there and whatnot. But they're always surrounded by enemies. And even today, they're surrounded by people that don't acknowledge their right to exist. And it's, the battle's got to be the Lord's. In fact, we even know in the Battle of Armageddon, the end battle, the end game, what happens? The, the nations of the world, the Rus from the north, Magog, the Russians, 
and their confederation with the Persians, Iran, the Syrians, the kings of the east, they come and they come against Israel. They come to make war against Israel and ultimately it becomes a war against God and God delivers Israel. The book of Ezekiel talks about how that looks and it's incredible that we're living in a time like this and the planet's moving toward this. So Israel then and Israel now will always be the underdog. And there's great technology that Israel has. Even now, their iron dome that they use in defense with all the missiles and rockets being shot at them. But in the end, the Lord protects Israel. They wouldn't be a nation if God didn't let them be rebirthed as a nation after World War II. And that's just the way it is. So when we take the context of them and their perpetual oppressors from the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great and the Greeks, the Seleucid Empire, the Romans, I mean, it just the, the Turks, it just goes on and on and on. But when you look at the scripture for us, we're not in those physical battles. We're the Church of Jesus Christ here tonight, and we have battles, but they're not physical that way. Ours are always spiritual, and we're told that, that we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in spiritual places. The battles that we fight, first and foremost, are always spiritual battles. And, our, and we're told that our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for tearing down strongholds of the enemy. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapon is the word of God that's living and powerful and pierces bone and marrow, and it silences the forces and the wicked powers of darkness. That's what we have. WG, what we have tonight is our prayer, our faith in Jesus, and his word. And if the name of Jesus doesn't win our battles, they're not battles that we're going to win. It's that simple. So... What we can derive from this is the church always is the underdog, right? We enter by the narrow gate. The church always has oppressors against it. All over the world right now, the church is being oppressed by various governments where men of power and women of power and influence, whether the oligarchs that control all the the media and the censorship and all these things and the thought police and all this stuff. It doesn't matter. We're always going to be the minority. And our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God. So we're going to move mountains through prayer. We're going to advance the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and the truth that it is. Who Jesus is, what he's done, where he's at, and what he's going to do. These, this is what we have. And our battles against every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus will come, and when he comes, he sets it all straight. Until then, we're the minority. And our battles that come against us for our faith in Jesus, our stance for righteousness and the things of the word of God that we're talking about on Saturday, that's the Lord's battle. So when we look at this text, we just need to realize, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. We're called to love our enemies and let God fight against them. That's what we're called to do. We're called to love our enemies and let God fight against them. And those, those oppressors, those people that come against us because of our faith or just in general, because the devil harasses you with people that you think, why is this person like this toward me? They might be like that toward you because they're just being manipulated by the devil to ruin your day and to provoke you to evil and to wrath. But the battle is the Lord's. We've got to remember that. that. The battle is the Lord's. Like David said, the battle is the Lord's. And so we've got to remember that we fight our battles in prayer with the word of God. And we're going to always be the underdog. But know this, if God be for us, who can be against us? And no weapon fashioned against us will prosper. It's always whatever the Lord is allowing for a greater purpose in our life. And we need to always keep our eyes on Jesus for whatever spiritual battles we fight and whatever conflicts come our way for our faith and our convictions based upon Jesus and his word. They were always going to be the minority. 
there's going to always need to be a supernatural victory for them. And for us, it's, we're going to always be the minority, and it's going to always, we're going to always need a, a supernatural victory. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we have to let the Lord fight our battles, now more so than ever. We read on in verse 5, for the historical context, verse 5. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicated. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they make captains of the armies to lead the people. So now as they would prepare for battle, we have this principle of men that are released from battle. And again, if the battle is the Lord's, and we see this in the scriptures, the Lord doesn't need many to deliver. He can deliver with many or few. We're taught that, right? And sometimes it also takes us Esther going in on behalf of her people, and it turns the tide of everything. It's like Jonathan and his armor bearer 500 years before Esther and 500 years after this. He said, the Lord is able to deliver with many or few, so let's do this and see that, and who's, let's go see what the Lord might do. And a great victory came because of their faith. And of course, again, it was military, it was combat, it was the existence of a nation. We understand that contextually for them. And so here we have this example where God's saying, look, if he's not dedicated his house, let him go and return to his house. Then it says, if he hasn't, you know, partaken of the vineyard, let him go and partake of his vineyard. And if he's about to get married and hasn't gotten married, let him get married. And if he's scared, let him go home. So four reasons to go home, but the first three are very different than the fourth one. The first three, it's interesting. It's kind of like God is saying, you know what? Before you die in combat, enjoy life. Enjoy the dedication of your house that you worked hard to purchase and own, if you will. Before you die in combat, enjoy the vineyard you built, the company you built, and the success of the labor of your hands. Enjoy that and the fruit of what you're educated for, what you're trained in, and you're able to produce from your life. And before you die in battle or afraid of dying in battle, enjoy the bride of your youth. Enjoy your honeymoon. Enjoy that first year of your marriage. Know the joy of love and a relationship of intimacy. That's what God is saying. And I like this. I like this. I do. And you should too. God is saying that, well, let's put it this way. If you're going to die in combat and you know you're about to be overrun, I think the last thought I'd have is the joy of my wedding day, the churches I've pastored, my grandchildren, my children, Timmy's graduation, Hannah's graduation from Vanguard. My mind would just go through all these things, winning the pipe masters, all the things that God let me experience. And I'd just be like, here we go. No one wants to step into eternity having not experienced the human experiences. And there's a broad swath of human experience that we can have. Some people never get married. Some people die young. And I appreciate this where God's saying, you know what? Because when they went to combat, they didn't always come back, did they? People die in war. We lost thousands of soldiers in the Afghan war and thousands of soldiers, of course, in Iraq as well. We lost 50,000 men in the Vietnam War. Memorial Weekend's coming up, and I was going through my dad's stuff. I have his whole tour of Vietnam on slides. So he went in the summer of 66, and he came home in the summer of 67 before Tet. So if you know Vietnam, that was when we've, America felt like they could still win the war. 
And I have all these pictures. Like, this was his desk. He was a major. This is where he did. I got his commendations. And I, I, I finally, I saw a picture I'd never seen before with the bullet hole in the helicopter where he got shot, where the bullet hole hit the helicopter. But, you know, I, I saw a picture of my dad I'd never seen before. And it kind of reminded me of the movie Platoon where they're, they're leaving, you know, when they're leaving. And they have that, they have that thousand-yard stare that used to get in World War II. And my dad looks a certain way on the boat when he's coming into Vietnam at the beginning of his tour. And he's on a ship smiling with all these guys. He trained 800 draftees to go to war in Vietnam, and then he took them to Vietnam as their major. And there's a picture I found of my dad just this week where he's got the thousand-yard stare, and it's May 67. He's in the last month of his tour of duty in Vietnam, serving our country and the USMC. And he's got the look, the look of someone who's seen death. He's got the look of someone who's been shot in combat. And there's the article of his best friend who died, a U.S. citizen from Hawaii. It was his best friend who died when he was in Vietnam. It's the one there. I remember going to the wall. My dad went to the wall to find his friend's name on the wall there in D.C. So I love that the Lord says, you know what? Before you face combat and your worst fears, I want you to enjoy dedicating that house that you worked hard to buy and build. I want you to enjoy the vineyard you planted and, and the grapes of that vineyard. And I want you to enjoy your wife and the joy of love and intimacy with the bride of your youth. Isn't that beautiful? And then the fourth one is if you're scared, go home. And I'm good with that one too. You don't want to paddle out at 40 foot YMA Bay if someone's afraid to paddle out from my surfing background. There's people that want to paddle out in 40 foot surf and there's people that don't. And if you don't, you shouldn't. And you don't want to paddle out with them either. You want to you want to paddle out in big surf with guys who want to charge you too. Like you just that's the way it is, you know. Birds of a feather, and we we feed off each other. And if someone's scared to go into combat, that's the worst thing imaginable in a combat situation. And the Lord doesn't need thirty thousand men to deliver Israel. He only needs three hundred. Just ask Gideon in the Book of Judges, from thirty thousand to three hundred, and then even use their swords to win the battle. <laughs> the Lord did it, right? So I think there's a lot here for us to take from it that. Certainly the, the value of the life experiences that God wants us to enjoy before we might lose our life in a given situation in service to our country. And then also, it just shows that we need to enjoy the moment of the day too. Enjoy the home, enjoy the vineyard, enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband. Because those things could be gone tomorrow to enjoy the moment because who knows what tomorrow might bring. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said a lot of stuff like that. This is the whole duty of a man. Work hard, enjoy the fruit of your labor and just enjoy it and the goodness that God has given you, and that they're in his life. I think most of us understand that. But then when it comes to the battle, some things make us afraid, and if something's really, if it's beyond you, then it's beyond you, and it's good to know that. You know what I mean? Like, if something's just beyond you, like, you know what, this is beyond me, that's okay. That is okay. I never faulted anyone that didn't want to paddle out a 15-foot pipeline. I actually commended them. That's pretty good common sense right there. You're realizing how gravity and force and physics works and surfing big waves at pipeline. People get killed at pipeline. I've seen dead people wash up at pipeline. I would never hold it against you that you don't want to paddle out at 15-foot pipeline like I do. And now that I'm 60, I can't even imagine that I ever even did. You know, when you get older, you're like, how did I ever do that? So it's okay to be afraid. And it's okay to let some things go because you just know, like, you know, that's not for me. That's okay. Now, we read on in the latter part of this chapter, the back part, we get a few more things on these principles governing warfare, and this is important. 
It says in verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offering of peace to it. And it shall be that they accept your offer of peace and open to you. Then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that's in the city, all of its spoils, you shall plunder for yourselves. And you shall eat of the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. So these are the principles of warfare for people that are not in the promised land. So if they went to war with Syria up in the north or things like that, and this was their principle. Now, remember, obviously in the world, people, if you know human history, and I don't want to go into it, and we'll get enough ugly stuff later on in this study tonight, but humanity is incredibly evil to humanity. And if you just look at from the Civil War to what the north did when they went through the south, Sherman's March, if you look at just what the, the Mongols did going through Russia and, and Europe in the 1200s and just Genghis Khan and his descendants. It's just the brutality of everybody and the Vikings and their brutality. And it just never ends. Like men are de- desperately evil and wicked. The heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? And men are vicious, brute beasts. Without redemption, we're worse than the animal kingdom because we're made in God's image, so we're smarter than the animals. And we destroy, we kill, and we take. And so when we're reading these principles guiding warfare for God's people, there's actually mercy. God's like, don't just go burn and loot a city for the sake of it. Offer them peace right away. Just offer them a peace deal. Let's avoid conflict. We're stronger than you. You've been afflicting us. Ben-Hadad, whatever it is, using the name of one of the Syrian kings, and this is the way we can settle this. But in doing so, Israel would have to be right with God in those situations. I can't find a record in the, the historical record where they were, but this was a principle for how to wage war. How, how to wage war. And remember, in war, more often than not, especially in the brutality of most of human history, the plunder of the war is the payment for the soldiers, for those who fought the war. Thus, the stripping of the dead and the stealing of the wealth and the redistribution of the wealth. Like when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, what did he do? He took everything from the temple. He took all the gold and all that stuff. And the people. Always take the people. It's what they do. The, Jap- the Japanese, when they conquered the Koreans, what they did, what, what, the, what the Japanese did, the Chinese, when they conquered them, what the Chinese did to their own people, what the Chinese want to do now, it's just, it's, just, it's endless. Whether it's, whether it's Arabic tribes to one another, or South American people groups, or American Native Indians, before the colonists came here, how they fought and killed each other, and what they did to each other, the different Comanches, Apaches, Cherokees, all of them, and then you go back to Europe and look what the Europeans did to each other. The sheer brutality of European people to one another. So when we read something like just go like, wow, you're going to plunder, you're going to take people? That's just, this is merciful. Verse 16. But of the cities of these people which the Lord has given you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they've done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. That would be a death sentence to Israel. So he explains to them why they're all to be completely destroyed. One, we know in the harmony of Scripture, they're under God's judgment and his wrath, and Israel is his instrument of wrath for these people groups. That's between them and the Lord. It's a unique situation, but it is from the Lord. But also, the danger of allowing these things to exist and what they would do to stumble their own people would be their downfall, and in fact, we know it was, because they did not obey this. Some things must be destroyed or they'll destroy us. We must put to death certain things that are harmful to our soul. If we do not put them to death, they will destroy our soul. 
You know, you could be an alcoholic and you could be sober for 30 years and just one day go in that liquor store and thinking you can do it. Just one bottle of wine and you would just, you could train wreck your life so fast you might never come back from it. Like my sister said, working so hard to rebuild her life through almost five years of sobriety. When she was in Florida and just overwhelmed after moving and she's like, she said, for the first time in a long time I was tempted to drink. She goes, I cannot drink because it's an immediate death sentence on my entire life. Everything God has done to take me from being on the streets, pushing a grocery cart around, out of my mind, to this day having a job, a house, a future, and a hope would be destroyed in a moment if I even drank just one glass of wine. There are things that we just have to destroy, or they will destroy us. There are places we just can't go ever, ever, because they'll destroy us if we go there. And that's just the way it is. And that's not a weakness to recognize that. It's a strength to recognize that and know that we just cannot go there at all. Now, the last thing we see is verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it and take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. So this is common sense, you know, like you don't cut down fruit trees because they bear fruit, right? Like you're not going to lay siege to a city and some sieges could take years and then, oops, we cut down the apple trees and now we don't have any food. If we left the apple trees, we could be eating the apple trees, right? Like that wouldn't make any sense. But I have to tell you a story. Years ago, more than 30 years ago, I was talking to John Corson and I brought up another ministry. It was actually his vineyard. Because 30 years ago, the vineyards in Calvary's are very much closely associated. You older people understand that. And it seemed whenever anyone started Calvary Chapel, someone started a vineyard right down the street. And this was something that happened a lot in the 80s. And I really like vineyard music, but it's just, it just one of those things, you know, Calvary and vineyards, like first cousins. And it's just because vineyard came out of Calvary. You don't know that. Okay. John Wimber, the founder of vineyard, was on staff with Chuck. Chuck trained him and he went down the road, started vineyard, and the rest is history. So I asked John Corson, what do you think of vineyard? Like, what do we do about vineyard? And he said, oh, Joey. And uh, he said, he quoted this verse. He goes, I don't want to cut down the tree that I can pick fruit from. That's what he said. You know, it stuck with me. I don't want to cut down the tree I can pick fruit from, and neither do you. We don't want to be people attacking, attacking, attacking other churches, other ministries, other movements that believe the gospel and the word of God. There's, there's just no, there's no time for that. And there's no, there's no good fruit that comes from it. And you're chopping down fruit. When I was in Russia at the pastor's conference, I was so grieved. And I've not really shared this, and I'll keep it short. But the book, they're doing the book of Jude. So they're just attacking, you know, they're talking about fast, false prophets and all this kind of stuff. And I get it. The book of Jude's like that. But it was such a negative conference. I said, I can't wait to go back to Russia and just bring some encouragement and and just look just something more edifying it's just so heavy like and one of the things they did is they attacked all the christian music that comes from hillsong and bethel and these different groups and we sing these songs almost every service now i'm not going to go pastor bethel and i'm not going to go pastor a hillsong but i'm going to sing those songs so why am i going to cut down the tree that's bearing the fruit of some of the best songs i've ever sang in my life from my human experience why am I going to sing these beautiful songs that minister to me in the hardest times of my life on this screen and then go to Russia and attack the people that go to Hillsong, including my kids who were going to Hillsong at the time? That makes no sense at all. At all. So 
to glean from John Corson, I share this with you. Don't cut down fruit that, that is God's. Just eat the fruit. Just pick the fruit and enjoy it. It's not my, I'm not the lead pastor at these churches that have produced great music that maybe have different views on certain things. I just don't have time for it. And honestly, neither do you. Now, as things come in my wheelhouse, in our wheelhouse, we might take a stand for certain things and against certain things and be identified by that. But the best defense is a great offense. And I find if we just stay focused on who we are and do what we're called to do, we'll do just fine. And where we can agree with people in the body of Christ to do those things, it'll be wonderful. And like Billy Graham would do. And where we can't, it's okay. We can agree to do a crusade with Greg Laurie up here. I'm not going to plant a church with these people because we probably wouldn't agree on, how, on the philosophy, the government, and what we're going to do. But we can agree on loving Jesus. We can agree that God's word is his word. And we can agree that they write great songs and they're wonderful to sing. And Greg Laurie's preaching the gospel and wants to see people get saved. Like, that's how we need to be. So I share that because it was a profound moment in my life when John Corson shared that with me. And when I've, I've heeded that counsel, I've been very good in my health with the Lord and the overall body of Christ. When, I've, when I focus on what we have in common with other believers, I've done much better than when I focus where we don't have in common with other believers. So I share that from my heart from this text with you tonight. Now we go on in verse chapter 21. Now we get into some heavy... Heavy civil law stuff here, so we're going we're gonna to plow this field and just say a few things about it. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, and is not known who killed them, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke, that's a, a, a calf, the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, because remember you got Levites in every little town. They shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled, and the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Obviously, it's like a, it's like a criminal thing. There's a body found, it feels like a like a TV criminal show, right? A body's found, someone's been murdered, and the police come and investigate it. Here's the priests and the elders. Okay, we don't know what happened. No one saw it. No one heard it. What happened here? You know, it's a man. It's a woman. What's happened? It's, it's, it's criminal investigation. It's civil law in their covenant. And God says, now go get a Levite. Get the heifer. And first of all, there's a blood guilt on your city. So you need to deal with your village. Your village is responsible. This happened near your village. It's on your account. So if a policeman, it's your district, Long Beach PD, whatever, it's, it's your HBPD. It's, it happened in your realm, so it's in your jurisdiction and you're accountable for it. So they would wash their hands and confess, we don't know what happened here. We honestly don't know. And what was it for? It was to release the blood guilt of innocent blood. And see, this is very important because in the New Testament, Paul carried this forward. Because when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I've not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Hmm. There's actually implied in New Testament, there's a blood guilt for not declaring the whole counsel of all God's word. 
that's pretty serious for me as a lead pastor and a teacher and a shepherd to think about. Something for us all to think about. But the principle of innocent blood. I often wonder how the Prussians were the most powerful people in the world in the late 1800s. When Prussia merged with Greater Germany and it was the first, first right after they defeated the French, Napoleon III and all that, like same time as our Civil War. And they defeated the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and then allied with them. And they, were building, they built a navy in 50 years that rivaled the British Navy, the greatest navy in the world. And, and you know, you think about the German minds and the Prussians and all the music, Mozart, Beethoven, all this stuff. You think about their science contributions. If you know much about science, the German, the Prussians, just genetically, they just did incredible things. And then they brought the war machine of World War I. They're the most powerful army in the world. Then World War II at the Third Reich, and they almost seem unstoppable. And then after World War II, like, where are they ever since? They shed so much innocent blood in Europe, it's, in, it's inconceivable. Like 30,000 Jews in one day in Kiev, Ukraine. One day, the SS slaughtered 30,000 Jews. They rounded up every Jew in Kiev, a major city, took them outside and slaughtered them in a big gravel pit. It's a fact. The memorials are there in Kiev. And I think, you know, Germany went from being a superpower, the superpower of the world, to who they are now. Where they're so pluralized, they've lost their identity, they can't get along with amongst themselves. They were divided East and West Germany. Where are they now? They gave us Martin Luther. They gave us reformers. I mean, they, they gave great things to the human race. And where are they now? I'm going to suggest to you, innocent blood shed has set them back as a people group beyond measure. And I'm going to suggest to you, any nation that allows the shedding of innocent blood has blood guilt on them in God's economy. And I'm going to suggest to you, our proliferation of the unborn uh, emphasized with abortions for the last, since Roe v. Wade and before that, has put undue innocent blood shed on this nation, across the board on this nation, and it makes us weaker by the day. And now we sell body parts of unborn infants. Now we do the stem cell and put it in vaccines. And you think we're guilt-free on that? No. One of the greatest problems in America right now is we've got innocent blood all over us and on our heads, on our hands, and to our account as a nation upon our politicians, our lawmakers, and what they've allowed. And it was Billy Graham who said, for the right of the unborn, that if God doesn't judge America for what they've done to the unborn, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. So let's just make it clear, blood guilt is a very real thing. And that's why I commend people who are willing to walk for life, collect coins in a baby bottle for life to help at-risk pregnancies and take a stand for what's right. And by the way, church history is believers standing up against emphasis in all situations. You know, back in the colonial era before we were a nation, emphasis was very common in the colonies and it was believers, it was followers of Christ who would stand up for those unborn children and try and rescue those unborn children and give them a life to live because you only get one life to live. See, we often think in our mind, like, well, they just, they live in glory forever with, with God. But maybe you think about this for all the unborn and the millions of unborn lives and the innocent blood that's been shed and that we're held accountable for. You think what they didn't get. They didn't get the first day of kindergarten. 
They didn't get to know the first kiss of someone that you love. They didn't get to have an engagement party. They didn't get to have a wedding day. They didn't get to dedicate their house. They didn't get to plant their vineyards. They didn't get to experience the human experience because someone took it from them. And that's blood guilt. And so I'm suggesting to you right now, our biggest problem in the United States of America is not other countries that threaten us or even people that betray us from within. Our biggest problem is the blood guilt of innocent blood upon this country in my timeline. And someone's going to pay for it. Now, here's the good news for the body of Christ. Because Christ has died on the cross and shed his innocent blood for our blood guilt as human beings. And remember, I paid for an abortion. And I lost the first son later on. I mean, I paid for an abortion, a hundred bucks, and then I held my dead son in my arms two years later. Let me tell you, I know how things work with the Lord. And if I can tell you anything, no one gets away with anything. I remember ministering to a woman years ago at Vista, and she just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed as she lost her third child. And she said to me, it's God's punishment because I aborted three children, and now he's taken three children I wanted. Wow. No, no one gets away with anything. But Christ has paid the price. So through faith in Jesus, we can find forgiveness. We can find comfort. We can find healing. Your body is not designed to have a baby ripped out of it, ladies. So if you do that, your body might not be the same in the future when you want to have children. It's not natural. It's unnatural. But we find forgiveness in Christ, even as I did. And we find hope in Christ. And we know that he's paid the price. So no matter what comes upon a nation for the inhabitants of the nation... If we have faith in Jesus and he fights our battles, we're fine. So you see, I'm not moved by who's in the White House or who's controlling the Supreme Court or, or whatever's going on in the world. That doesn't move me because we're living for Jesus and his is the coming kingdom in glory. So we don't have to be moved. Like, I'm not making laws that further emphasize. I'm not furthering laws that slaughter the innocent, sell their body parts, and then take their stem cells and put them in vaccines. I'm not making those laws. They are. Christ is my king, and he's your king, and he's king of this church. So my conscience is fine because of my faith in Jesus. My conscience is fine because of my repentance for my sins. And Christ is Lord of my life, and he's Lord of your life for all of us individually. I'm about being, trying to be a faithful shepherd. I'm about trying to further the kingdom and further the gospel worldwide until Christ comes back and in my lifetime as much as I can do. And that's what we're about. We can't make our adult children repent. We can't make our adult children walk with the Lord and make good decisions. We can't make our grandchildren make good decisions. But we can make good decisions and make that the legacy of our life. And we can't make those above us in power make good decisions. We can pray for them like we're told to. And we can hope they will. But we can make the right decisions. We can be free from blood guilt as we're at the cross of Christ and as we're interceding for those who are too foolish, too ignorant, and too demonically deceived to know they need to be there too. And that's what we can do. That's what we can do. You know, my son Luke stood up for pro-life things when he was in college, and he was so assailed. The verbal violence against my son for standing up for what's right, true, just, and noble was unbelievable. I never stood up for something like that in college. I just tried to keep my head down. I was more like Timothy. Timmy told Luke, just say what they want you to say and get it done and get your degree. Luke's like, no, man, I'm going to call him out. He's like John the Baptist. You know, he's just going to do it. We're all different. 
There's blood guilt. But with faith and repentance, it's not over our life. It's over theirs. So we do everything we can to make the right decisions, to bring blessings on our life, and then we become the covering. Because even as a government might put blood guilt over their people, and even as a city might be accountable for blood guilt because of a murdered innocent person in their community, and the radius that you'd measure out, and then they have to break its neck and then wash your hands, even because of that blood guilt, what we bring when we walk with the Lord and we're walking by faith, we bring the power of the kingdom right over our lives, like the anointing oil of Aaron upon his beard. And it flows over our marriages, and it flows over our children, and our children's children, and it flows over our neighborhood. John Corson used to walk through my neighborhood because he lived in my neighborhood when he lived down here. He'd come by my house, I've told you, he'd have a couple coffee and he'd be pronouncing blessings on every house in our neighborhood including mine the lord bless thee and keep thee we bring that covering we don't bring blood guilt we bring the blood of the the lamb jesus christ who paid for our guilt and we bring that over the lives of these people see their blood guilt doesn't come upon me or you not when we don't agree with them now when we agree with them we yoke ourselves with them then we are bringing blood guilt upon ourselves and that's why Paul said, I'm innocent in the blood of all men, because I'm not ceasing to declare to you the whole council. So when we agree with them, or as it says in Romans, we, agree, we, we condone what they're doing, then we are collaborators with their blood guilt. And I refuse to be a collaborator with their blood guilt. What that means in your conscience might be one thing with mine. I know exactly what it means in my conscience. I'll have none of it. None of it. None of it. I've got enough blood guilt from foolish decisions in my youth. I don't need to add to it in my 60s, nor do you. I'm going to bring the blood of Christ and the anointing of Aaron upon my life, upon this church, upon you, and bring blessings upon you so you can bring blessings upon the people you love beneath you. And we're going to go right to heaven. We're going to make an umbrella of blessings over the people we love, whether they want it or like it or not. And we're going to step into eternity with no remorse and no regret. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do in Jesus' name. But I'm not going to be a part of blood guilt out here, outside these doors. Innocent blood guilt. No. And yet, it's not going to happen. We read on. It says here now, in verse 10, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home into your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and mother a full month. After that, you may go into her sexually, and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally, because you have humbled her. This has to be the most merciful passage of Scripture for the human race at that time in how societies treated one another. The abducted woman from a conquered people, God is protecting. This is an incredibly merciful passage for her. It's beautiful. Because God knows, like Jesus said about divorce, he goes, God, permit because of the hardness of your heart. We have hard hearts. When talking about the poor, it says in the Old Testament, we saw it in Deuteronomy, the poor you always have with you. What does Jesus say? You always have the poor with you. People are going to brutalize and take advantage of other people as long as man's alive until we're all in glorified bodies in the everlasting kingdom. These are restraints. This is civil law restraining evil men from being evil. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son of hers who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequests his possessions his, to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son he loved of the, of the wife he loved in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. 
But he should acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he's the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. That's child support. That's a biblical model for child support, right? That's an interesting principle, right? God's saying, hey, you men, you can trade in women like you think you can for like cars. But know this, you can't trade in children. And that child of the first wife that's now unloved, because you can't serve two masters, you love one and hate the other. So it's true, you can't love two wives at the same time. It's impossible. You'll love one and hate the other. So you put away that first wife, or you neglect her, and you know she's just part of your estate or whatever, who even knows, your workforce. When the estate and the trust is divided, he gets the double portion. So this is God protecting that child who's the victim of a situation like this. It's God holding men accountable for their actions. And can I get a witness and an amen for that? Amen. That's a good thing. Because I've spent 33 years in ministry picking up the pieces of what men, selfish men have left behind in their wake. And it's hard to watch because they're the spiritual leader. Now we read in verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or voice of his mother, who when they have chastened him will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son. This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men in the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear in fear. Could you imagine if in America they pulled out every entitled millennial male who sits in a basement playing video games all day and held them accountable <laughs> to get a job and do their job and show up for work at 8 in the morning, or 9 in the morning or at noon and work for 8 hours? What a restraint it would be. See, it only takes one generation being entitled and enabled to rebel against the Lord to destroy the future. Just look at our country. Just one generation of entitlement and enablement will destroy an entire nation's existence and identity. It's the most famous book written after the Bible, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. All it takes, just one generation of entitled children thinking everyone owes them a favor and they're enabled and they're not held accountable and they think they're getting away with everything and then before you know it, it's gone. That's what happens when we rebel against the Lord and rebel against his word and rebel against the, the, the gospel. Because really, for all the rebellion in this country and the effects now of a generation where 8 out of 10 people used to go to church, now it's like 6 out of 10, where the rise of all these philosophies that are ungodly and opposed to the gospel and Jesus Christ have arisen in our land, it's the result of entitlement and enablement of an entire generation that's grown up. They shout down, they scream down, they cancel, they woke, they, they, they flash mob, they do all these things, and they think that somehow that's going to produce something other than death in their life. But it's not. It's going to destroy this next generation. It's destroying them right now before our eyes. Only Christ can turn this around. Only an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, only a great revival like the Jesus movement can save this generation from a dark future that's looming over them. Now, again, you, you can be in the midst of this generation and be totally delivered because you're right with the Lord. That's how it works with the Lord. And we're part of the solution, not part of the problem. As we seek the Lord, as we press into the Lord, and we humble ourselves before the Lord. We're part of the solution, not the problem. So we keep loving, we keep forgiving, but we're not ignorant of the times and seasons that we live in. We're not condemning or judgmental on those around us, 
But we certainly can discern the times and the seasons of what we live in and what's going on. And we have to purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves and to, and to let these things desensitize us to being crisp and sharp in the things of the Spirit with Jesus Christ, his word, and true discipleship. True discipleship. We must pick up our cross daily and follow Christ for such a time as this. And I keep saying it. It's all so clear to me right now where it's all at. And I just feel like it could all change in one moment. And we just, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that's who we have to be. Though none go with me, yet I will follow. That's how we have to be. Now we get this last portion of scripture. Obviously, we're not going to stone rebellious children. Hopefully, we won't let them sit in the basement and play video games all day, though. Verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree. That would be capital punishment. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Capital punishment. A public capital punishment. And, of course, we know that this came to pass with Jesus on the cross. This verse is quoted, if you know your New Testament, in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, that Jesus was accursed for us. When he hung on the cross, he took the curse of capital punishment, the wage of sin is death, for us. So the curse on us, he took the curse, and then we're declared righteous. So he perfectly fulfilled the law. There's no curse on him because he's a lawgiver and he fulfilled it. But he took the curse that was on us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God. It's the most, it's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. That's why we're here joyfully. It's why we sing songs joyfully with faith, because of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, where he's at, and what he's going to do. So curse is him who hangs from a tree, capital punishment for the criminal, yes. But we, like Barabbas, are released because Christ died in our place, and God put the curse on him. And the New Testament takes this verse in the book of Galatians and makes that clear.